Okay. All right. I'll do your. I'll help you with your intro. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? Ladies and gentlemen, wizards and witches, welcome to the Style Guide Podcast with your hosts Dave Morris and Stephen Orr. How you doing today, Dave? I am wonderful, Stephen. Yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And what are we talking about today? We're talking about the Harry Potter book series by J.K. Rowling. Yes, and we may venture into the movies a little as well, I'm sure, but I think we're focusing mostly on the book series. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. The movies are a different beast. Yes, which we may attempt to tackle one day, but not today. Not today. Okay, well, let's let's dive right into it, Dave. Great. Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter books. They, uh, the story of Harry Potter has been a story that I've read many times throughout my life. And I think Christmas is, seems to be a time when I want to read them again. I don't know about you, but that's when I do end up reading Harry Potter is over the Christmas season. And I'm not sure if that's because that's when I first read it. Or if uh, if it was if it's just like that's the good time of year where they feel Christmassy. You know, I I hadn't thought of that, but in retrospect, my family rents the Harry Potter movies over Christmas, and that's the last time I did a thorough reread of them. So I, th I think there's something to the fact that there is a Christmas feel to the books. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's maybe it's the magic of it. Maybe it's the 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 sort of like I, I want to say colorfulness. Of the books themselves, uh, that makes you want to read them during Christmas when it's cold outside and you just stay in and cuddle up with a warm book. It's also the holiday that shows up every year in the book. Yeah, it is part of one of the one of the story traditions. Is what did Harry and Ron get for Christmas from Mrs. Weasley? Aww. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's 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 talk about the story because I think uh, I think that's the the part that makes Harry Potter so great is the story itself. Uh, not so much the writing style of J.K. Rowling, which both of us tolerate. We could we could take it or leave it. Oh well, I'm I'm going to say I don't just tolerate her writing style. I do enjoy her writing, but not as much as I enjoy her story. Well, and and that's because the story is done in such a straightforward way that you you as a reader have a very easy time following along with it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think uh, I think it was Stephen King who said that uh, when J.K. Rowling writes, it's just all story. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds like Stephen King. Yeah, and there's not a lot of fluff or uh, unnecessary expansion. I mean, you could argue in the later books that it does start getting a little uh, fluffy. unnecessarily f fluffy and expanded, but... Uh, for the first few books, uh, for sure, it's just like story, story, story. Let's just move through this awesome story. And, and that has a lot to do with the way that she has carefully structured the books. So a lot of fantasy series have a lot of story in them as well, but they don't have the same level of structure to the core narrative. And so it's easy for you to get lost in either the multitude of characters, the different threads that the author is thinking about, or the the long-term vision of the story. True, yeah. But in Harry Potter, it's it's a lot more clear because of the frame of a school year. Yeah, and not only the school year, but uh, but how it's the first few first couple, maybe three, four chapters are before getting to Hogwarts, and then they arrive at Hogwarts, and then they get introduced to Hogwarts again, the new teacher and all that sort of stuff. And then the plot starts to thicken and gets really dense. And then it always ends with them going back, Harry having to go back home to uh, Privet Drive. So, and, and it, it does, it, she does break that structure in the fourth book. Yeah. Where they go to the uh, Quidditch World Cup. And she breaks it again with the last book, of course, where they aren't even going to school. They're going on an adventure. What's particularly interesting is the way and the times that she chooses to break it. Because the fourth book is the one where, yes, we have the Quidditch World Cup, so that breaks it early. But then we also have the Triwizard Tournament, which again breaks the, the basic story structure of the school year and turns it into a different sort of adventure. Oh, and not only that, but that fourth book also breaks it with, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, the first chapter is through Voldemort's eyes. 
That's true. It's the Voldemort is like kind of getting back to his strength with uh, with um, Wormtail. Uh, is his name Wormtail? It's always Wormtail. Yep. I always want to say Wormtongue like from Lord of the Rings, but um, uh, which we can talk about her influences <laughs> later. But uh, uh, Wormtail and the, the gardener and, and Voldemort kills the gardener. And then Harry wakes up from a dream with a scar burning. But so so she breaks it right off the start, and then they go to the Quidditch World Cup, and then all that stuff. But but that's the beauty of it, right? Because by the time the fourth book comes around, you're ready for that. You've you've become accustomed to the story structure and mm-hmm. and the little differences we've had, right? Where uh, is it in the third book where they get first get the off school visits to Hogsmeade? Yes, it is. Yeah, and and so that in itself changes a little bit of it, but it doesn't b- break the core structure of the story. And so you always know in the in the later books what kind of beats are going to come up. And then by the time you get to the fourth book, she changes them. We have the ball during Christmas and mm-hmm. and the tournament and it changes the importance of the house cup and and Quidditch is canceled and all these sorts of things which which show that, yes, there's a sense in which the the basic narrative had been done a few times and was a little tired, but it shows she understands storytelling pretty well because she knew that was her opportunity to change things so dramatically. Yeah, well, and you know, not only breaking it there, but also with in the third book she breaks it because she sets up the first book where at the end of the book we encounter Voldemort. Uh, sorry, he who must not be named. And then in the second book, at the end, we encounter this boy, the boy uh, spirit of uh, he who must not be named. And then in the third book, we would expect to encounter him again, right? Because we're like, okay, meet him, meet him. This one we have to meet him, and we don't meet him instead. We meet Sirius Black, who turns out to not be a bad guy. So she breaks it there as well. And then the fourth book starts with Voldemort, which is, that's like awesome, considering we didn't have him in the last book. Yeah, and and what I really like about it is is the progression of of the the villain in in the series, where we start with this this shade of Lord Voldemort in the first book, mm-hmm. and and that is enough for us to we've had this background throughout the story where people are worried about Lord Voldemort and and they're afraid of him and Harry doesn't quite understand everything about that fear. But our first experience with this this sliver of of Lord Voldemort is enough to go, oh, we understand why he's such a bad guy in the universe. Yeah. And and the next book couldn't possibly have followed Harry fighting Lord Voldemort because Harry would lose. Mm-hmm. A, a second year student at Hogwarts just simply doesn't have the knowledge or the skill to succeed in that sort of environment. And she knew that right off the hop. She knew Harry had to grow up before he was going to ever come across Lord Voldemort. Yeah, at least a little bit, more than 11 years old. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, so the second book, uh, instead of Voldemort, it's a memory of Voldemort. So, yeah, I see, I see what you mean by that progression, that it's, it's a shadow of Voldemort almost in the first one. Then it's a memory of Voldemort. And then it's the followers and supporters of Voldemort. And then finally in the fourth book, at the very end, is it Voldemort? And Harry loses that one hands down. Like that that, yeah. that confrontation, it, it sold fluke. as a victory in, yeah. in that Harry got away, but he came toe-to-toe with his enemy and and his enemy came out the victor. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a fluke that he he got away. Yeah, with the wands doing their their thing where they call back all the spirits of like the last spells that were used, you know? Like that was just like 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 pure luck, which helps Harry a lot in the books, might I add, <laughs> to the point that at one point he drinks a luck potion in order to succeed. <laughs> but that's that's her self aware storytelling. Like that's the, yeah. the beauty of it. Yeah, exactly. She she knows, so she was like, "Fine, there's a luck potion. That's how we'll do this one." The other thing I love about it is like that whole thing with the wands there, in that they have the same wand. Like that was an offer she threw out in the first book for herself. Uh, and this is something I do appreciate about her writing is that um, she she would throw out all these things in the first book, little things, you know, references this. Maybe she knew where she was going. Maybe she didn't. We could argue forever whether or not she knew the idea of Horcruxes in that first book uh, when and she knew that Harry was a Horcrux the whole time. Like we could argue forever about whether that's true or not. 
Uh, and I don't think it matters because what matters is that every offer she threw out, she used. Like even to the very first chapter uh, of Dumbledore appearing at the end of the street out of nowhere. That is what she later describes as apparating and disapparating. Uh, the put-outer, the little, little lighter that he has at the very beginning there, that put-outer ends up coming back at the at the very end when he gives it to, to Ron. When Hagrid arrives on the motorcycle, the motorcycle was lent to him by young Sirius Black, who, of course, ends up being the villain in the third book, but, of course, is Harry's godfather. Um, so, like, she threw out all of these offers, uh, so many of them, and uh, and then picked up every single one. Yeah, and I think that points to one of the reasons that the book started progressively getting bigger and bigger and and we had more characters and more more of the world getting developed because she had set out all of these offers and every book included more and more and she couldn't drop them because they were important parts of the story that she was telling but the story that we wanted to read as well. Mm-hmm. And so... We we get to the point where, you know, books four, five, and six are just these massive tomes because so much is going on and so much needs to be explained, and we want to hear it. Yeah, we want to know. Like like when we start finding out about uh, uh, Fitch. Right. Is it, fi- is it Fitch or Finch? It's Fitch. Uh, Finch. The janitor at the yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. And we start, like, we, we find out that he's a squib. Right around the time when we find out what the word squib means. Yeah, like we, we, she slowly unravels every single character. Like, why is he such an angry janitor and how can we never see him use magic? Oh, well, let me explain that later on in the books. Uh, it's, it's great. And she explores all the, like, nearly had the snick gets explored really well. And, uh, the, like, even like the, the, the houses, like Rowena Ravenclaw, you know, and how she, her ghost is, the ghost of her daughter is still in the castle. Like she's the gray lady who we've been hearing about since like the second or third book, you know, like uh, it's, it's great how she, she manages to pick up every offer. And this is the other thing about her writing is she explores the world throughout her writing. You know, she wouldn't say, Oh, it's as tasty as uh, chocolate. She'd say it's as tasty as a chocolate frog. Yeah. Like she would, she makes a point of using her own world in her own writing style so that the metaphors the author is using all come from the world itself, you know, or I'll be, I'll, uh, you know, um, it, it's as the floor was as greasy as Professor Snape's hair. You know, she will use references to the world in her own writing, which helps fill out that world and pick up more of those offers that she's leaving for herself. And it's one of the things that makes her, her work more timeless than it than it really might be at first glance because while we i think i think fans are able to figure out when the year is in the in the book series i don't think she's explicit about that and and it's at least not on the surface explicit anyway but because of the way that she's always embedded in her version of the wizard world it could be taking place 30 years ago or 30 years from now because of how how committed she is to her universe. We're okay if the technology doesn't quite match up and we're okay if the the worlds collide in weird ways. Yeah, but even then she does a really good job of not uh, of having them not collide. You know, like because ma- wizards use magic, they don't use electricity. So all of a sudden all those things we have to deal with about electricity as, as a like maybe in like 300 years when electricity doesn't exist anymore and we're using some other kind of like phase power. I don't know. Um, it'll feel like, oh, this is an old book. But otherwise, it feels it could be from the 80s, the 90s, the thousands. It could be from the, the 50s almost. Yeah. And I compare it to something like the Chronicles of Narnia, which, again, another fantasy series in a similar sort of way with but the, the difference is the Chronicles of Narnia are definitely a product of wartime Euro- Europe. <laughs> yes, very clearly <laughs> set in that uh, time period. Yeah, and, and it works really well, but it makes it harder and harder to bring your audience back into that the more distance that comes from it. Whereas Harry Potter, and this might just be a fact of living in the world that Harry Potter lived in, but it, it seems easier to sell the world of Harry Potter to 
just about any audience. Yeah, and and uh, you know the other thing I love about the books and how they they flow into each other is that they always end with this like nice. You're looking forward to the next book. You know, like there's there's a there's like a promise of it's gonna get better or there's gonna be more about what you want to know about. Like I remember the first book ends with that lovely um, conversation with Dumbledore. Uh, and Harry asks him why, uh, what is it? he says, Voldemort said he only killed my mother because she was trying to protect me. Why was Voldemort trying to kill me? And Dumbledore tells him that he can't tell him now, not until he's older. And you're like, what? So much mystery now. Like, you want to keep reading the rest of the books. Which is what makes the the final book and its epilogue, despite being... I mean, pe- lots of people have different opinions on it. I don't particularly enjoy it myself. But what I think the purpose it serves in the story there is to have that break. Because mm-hmm. if if the story of book seven ended after the victory and all those sorts of things, we would still have that sort of, well, what's next question? Yeah. Is Harry going to go be an aurer in the Ministry of Magic or, or not, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there was so much more that we would want to know. And she didn't answer all of those questions, certainly with the epilogue, but what she did with the epilogue is said, those questions don't matter. The yeah. story is concluded. Yeah, Harry married Ginny. They had a kid named Albus. <laughs> oh. Albus Severus Potter. Like, let's just name our kids after every important person in our life. That's all they ever did. Uh, They're so unoriginal. Hey, to be fair, those people were pretty important to their lives. It's true. And, and, you know, like, I I still remember when I read the fourth book for the first time. And it was because I didn't get into the Harry Potter series until the fourth book had, I think it was just coming out that Christmas. Okay. Uh, And I read the first three in, like, like, two days. I read them straight through. Like I was like, these are great books. And I then like it was just it was the holiday, so I just read them. And then I got the fourth book on Christmas Day and opened it up and just devoured it, of course, because that's what people do with Harry Potter books, uh, which is a phenomenon on its own that we could talk about. The people lined up for Harry Potter books. Yep. Like like Harry Potter books were like iPhones. Like it's insane. Uh but uh we so we would get them, we would devour them. And then at the end of the fourth book, when, uh, or is it the end of the third book now that I think about it? No, it's the uh, it's the end of the fourth book where Albus, where where Harry tells him that Voldemort's back. Yeah, and Dumbledore says, "All right, quick, alert, blah 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 blah," and he lists off all of these wizards, you know, including Lupin, who we all loved from the third book. And uh, and like um, all, all these different wizards and aurors and stuff like that. And he's like, you got to alert them, tell them we're doing this. Da, 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 da. Let's get we're getting the gang back together, basically. And you're like, what? There's going to be a wizard battle. Or like you get so excited for the next book. Like you just want to find out who are these people. Uh, and then, of course, we meet them in the next book. Well, and, and that's the best part of that that book, right? Because we set up the Order of the Phoenix at the end of the fourth book. And we know there is going to be a big wizard battle. Something we haven't seen yet. We've only seen individual wizard duels, and it's been, those have been fun and interesting. And Harry just barely survived one with Lord Voldemort. And now we're going to see that on a grander scale. And we're so excited. And she manages to tease that out through almost the entirety of the Order of the Phoenix book. Yeah, for sure. Because that tension is there waiting. We know, we know that it is going to happen, and we don't know when or how. And and it just it's so so exciting that that build from the last book and it and you maintain that energy until the battle actually happens and very well written very interesting and manages to convey the chaos that we were all hoping for that Dumbledore set us up from within the last book with the battle at the end of the Order of the Phoenix you mean yeah in the Ministry of Magic yeah which you know culminates with Dumbledore. And Lord Voldemort facing off, yeah, and and we get to see oh, not man, not that, only is oh, yeah the no. only one he ever feared, maybe the greatest chapter I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> and well, and it's so great because 
The last four books have built Lord Voldemort up, and we know Harry can't beat him. We know yeah. Harry has no shot, but Dumbledore we have always seen as this kindly old man who has abilities, certainly, but the fact that Voldemort fears Dumbledore, that... Yeah, and he's the only one that Dumb that Voldemort fears. Like, it, it's like... And we're like, what do you mean? Dumbledore only like he eats candy. He's old. He doesn't. He like makes draws chairs out of thin air. Like that's all he does. He doesn't do any real powerful magic. He rigs and the then, house cup every year. Yeah, and then we see him like bring a bunch of statues to life, and one of them saves Harry. And they're like, and he's just walking super calmly as these statues are doing these like incredible things. And and that like the the shield he makes that lets out a big gong when it gets hit. Like ah, oh, it's so cool. Well, and, and that changes the character of Dumbledore for us all permanently. We, we, still, we still have Dumbledore the lovable old man, but once we and Harry have seen him at the height of his power, the character shifts for us, which is why he had to go away in, in that book. He had to primarily be... Cause is, is, am I Awful, not? yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's the one where he's not talking to harry yeah and and that's so important because he's because dumbledore is seeing the uh the voldemort in his eyes you know the snake in his eyes and he's having snape teach him about legilimens <laughs> and what's the uh, what's the other one legilimens and uh oculimens where you block it and legilimens where you read people's minds We're, our latin isn't very good no it isn't um but that's like uh, i mean that's a whole other awesome thing she does is how well she like introduces something in a book and then in the next book, that is like a huge part of the story. You know, like the whole idea of, of Polyjuice Potion that comes up in the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, and then, actually, it's two books later. And then in the fourth book, um, Mad-Eye Moody is actually an imposter who's been drinking Polyjuice Potion the whole time. So, like, she sets up this ability and then uses it again later in her own storytelling. And same with, like, the thing where you can read people's brains. And how she sets that up in that book. Uh, and then throughout the rest of the book, it's like Voldemort is doing that all the time to people. And uh, and Snape as well teaches, like when they're trying to fight and like you're not supposed to, like they're, they're teaching them to do nonverbal spells and to close your mind because otherwise your opponent can see what's coming and block it. And Snape is like still teaching Harry this at the end of the, the Half-Blood Prince. It's uh, it's great. She, she's, she's really good at... Um, building stories and building those stories bigger and bigger and reusing what she's already set up. She doesn't throw anything away. It's fantastic. Another great example from the very first book, Professor McGonagall being an anima uh, animagus. Animagus, yeah. Animagus, which we then see again in the third book. Two books book. later. Yeah. And then we see again with uh, the reporter Rita Skeeter. Mm -hmm, and yeah. it continues to be uh, an important part of the story. And she builds upon the rules for it and our understanding. And we learn more and more about it as we're ready to learn more and more about it. The very yeah, first time we see a professor turn into a cat, it's just cool magic. But then mm -hmm. the rules for it have to get explained and it becomes very cool. Yeah. And so like, yeah, so she throws out these offers for herself in the first book uh, and then picks up those offers and explains them and then uses them in her own storytelling. Uh, which is which is I think brilliant, and what makes it work so well is that, and it's what makes it look like where at the end of the book series you look back and say, "Did she know Harry was a Horcrux the whole time?" You know, it's almost the same trick we use in improv, where you just say yes and to every single offer that came before, uh, so that when you get to the end, you can trace it back to that very first offer of this lightning scar on this kid's forehead that's a curse that he'll have forever. And be like, oh, she knew it was a Horcrux back then. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing is that she doesn't feel the need to explain every detail. It's, I mean, she, she explains a great deal, but she, she still leaves questions for us unanswered. So we get to start, start to ask ourselves the, the questions of Horcruxes and, and go back through the books and think about what it really meant and that sort of stuff. And and she she has a knack for explaining the things that have to be explained, but then letting us start to figure out other parts of it on our own. Yeah, like all the kind of like deeper magic, I guess she hints at 
the idea of of love and the sacrifice that Harry's mother made and stuff like that, uh, and like the bond, the 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 blood bond that Snape makes to protect Malfoy, you know, and like uh, uh, Dumbledore when he's like in the cave and he can sense the magic and he just learns to see the traces of magic and it's like, whoa, what's going on? Like, what is this deeper magic? Yeah, and and we're not ready for any of that because Harry's not ready for for any mm-hmm. of that. It's and this has to do with the the particular knack of her writing to write particularly t- to the audience that a- as it's reading it. I mean, the the yeah. the book started off as written for young people and mature throughout the series as those children mature. I was one of those kids who grew up reading Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And as Harry started to experience different sorts of feelings, though I was going through a lot of those same things at the same time. And I was learning more about the world and what I understood in it, but I didn't understand everything. And there are parts of the world that even now I'm only starting to to understand much better than I did before. In the same way, all these different nuances of magic and the the world that Harry lives in aren't aren't there to be unlocked for the reader because Harry's not ready for them to be unlocked yet at age sixteen. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, as he gets older, we get older. As he as uh, he emotionally matures and starts noticing girls and stuff, and like, uh, which is probably some of the worst parts of the books. I think uh, <laughs> is the love triangle stuff, but I still tolerate it. I, I think it's necessary, is what I think, and it has to be in there because if he didn't have any interaction with girls at all in his whole like school career, no one would buy that. Yeah, and and if one of them didn't fall for Hermione. <laughs> we yeah. wouldn't have bought that either. Yeah, and that's the other thing that she does is uh, Ron and Hermione. We haven't talked about them really. Is that Harry Potter is basically luck and like raw talent. <laughs> like that's what he is. And the real his the, his partnership with Ron as as his good friend who actually knows the wizarding world and can help him fit in. And then Hermione who knows actually about magic and is smart uh, to help him find. To, to help him be smart, uh, the three of them together kind of make this perfect trio of of problem solvers. They do, they do. And I think you're right to point to the reliance on luck. But one of the things that I, I, I really like about this story is that there is a degree to which the notion of luck is kind of... Harry Potter is always lucky, certainly, but he makes his own luck. Yeah, by true. by being friends with Ron and Hermione, by being nice to Neville Longbottom, by you know choosing to save Draco, you know by by being a good person, but also by the choices he makes about uh, Dobby, you know, for example, and how important that his kindness ends up being throughout the rest of the series. Harry is always. Lucky, yes, but he's always lucky because he made the kinds of choices where where the luck would be enough to push it in his favor. You're right. You're right. You're right. I I uh, I, I I'm totally taking back my my statement of luck, and I should replace it with the statement of his, what he is is kind, and he cares. Love is his secret weapon. Well, and I mean, she gets really on the nose with that towards the later books. But, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but part of the part of the the story of that is Harry compared to Neville Longbottom compared to Draco Malfoy, and those three characters represent three very different paths that could have happened. And Neville Longbottom, in Harry's situations, Voldemort wins. Yeah. Draco Malfoy. In Harry's situations, Lord Voldemort wins. Yeah. And and it's only because of Harry's combination of fortunate circumstances, but also his his enduring kindness and his curiosity and and his desire to be a good human being and a good person 
that allows luck to even be a factor where it wouldn't yeah. be for those other characters. No, you're right. And, uh, and I think actually going to the first book when he's looking in the mirror uh, to get the Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone for those of you in the United States of America. Uh, and he's looking in the mirror and Dumbledore tells him afterwards that the reason he got it is because the magic was someone who wanted to get the stone but not to use it was the only person that could get it. And that kind of sums up Harry. Is He's the kind of person that will uh, gladly take power uh, when he needs it, but he won't use it against anyone or use it for his own benefit. You know, like he's not a t- he's not Voldemort. No, no. And, and he's not Neville either in that, I mean, he, he is willing to act. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the combination of, of yes, the, the desire to do good, but also the willingness to act, often brashly. But, in, but from the best place, like from the kindest heart. Yeah, and it, it costs Harry a lot. I mean, his, his brashness is, is exactly what costs his, his godfather his life. Mm-hmm. Like that, and, and that's Harry's most important connection to his family and his world before he, he was a wizard. And, and it's all his fault. Yeah, and we see it in what uh, he sees in the mirror. He sees his family near, just standing by him. That's all he sees. And, and like generations of potters, like his grandparents, all these people he never knew he sees in the mirror, which is all, which is like uh, his love and for them and that he cares. And same with, uh, that is what happens in the Order of the Phoenix, is that Voldemort realizes Harry's weakness and uses it against him. And that is that he cares. And the best, the best part of Voldemort realizing that is that was revealed to to us really explicitly in the last book, in the second of the Triwizard Tournament tasks, where Harry had to sorry, save the, the fourth book, yeah. Sorry, sorry, the fourth book where Harry saved the two other people. Yeah, by <laughs> even though he shouldn't. Have. Even though he shouldn't, have. and and it and it's. It's just the fact of his kindness runs runs so strongly there that, of course, Voldemort is going to find a way to use that against him in the next book yeah. because he realizes it. Yeah, and Voldemort's, uh, I think <laughs> one of the moments I laugh out loud when I read the books is in the final book uh, when Harry and Voldemort are having their final face-off. Okay, the war is like on, Beatrix is dead, everyone's dead, it's just Harry and Voldemort, and they're circling each other. And uh, they're talking, and and Harry's like egging on Voldemort, like he's all of a sudden like this super badass wizard, which is great. And he says, uh, he says, because I, you know, uh, I have something you don't have. And Voldemort says, "Is it love again?" <laughs> In this like mocking tone. In my head, I hear it so perfectly that it's like, "Ugh, is it love again?" I'm like you and your love. Uh, and Harry says, "No, it's not. It's not love this time." Uh, and it's the fact that he's just better, that he won the wand. Yeah. You're pointing to exactly another point of J.K. Rowling's wonderful writing style is that she's so self-aware. Oh, is yeah. it love again? Is is making fun of herself exactly while it's making fun of Lord Voldemort. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just the stories are just such beautiful stories. Like, I think I could, I could tell you more examples of what it is about them that makes them so beautiful and we could get into it over and over and over again um but they really are just like well woven together i think is the term i would use that everything fits and everything pieces together and uh it starts with these lovely threads that all tie together like all of ander coming back um from the very beginning and then he comes back in the middle for the triwizard cup and then he comes back at the end with the whole idea of the elder wand and the invisibility cloak at the very beginning comes back throughout of course throughout all the books uh and then comes back again at the very end with the the whole idea of the of the um what are they called the deathly hallows the, right right and uh and the idea of the like the uh, all the stuff the horcruxes is great well, and the the significance of the Dursleys, right? Like, they grow from just being this this foil to Harry's goodness to being characters in their own right that have their own reason for being. And yeah, and just that one moment in the last book where Dudley, uh, oh, what does he say to Harry? It, it's something. It's something super bo- like simple, like 
See you later. Yeah. <laughs> like he's nice to him for a second. Yeah. And how it's just like, wow, like Dudley has come around and we actually kind of care about him now. And yeah, and just how well she she brings it all back together. And the Deathly Hallows, that little tiny fairy tale that she tells about the three brothers. Yeah. Is awesome. And maybe one of the only parts from the Harry Potter movies that I truly was like, they nailed it when they show that sequence and how they do it with like animation and stuff. It's great. I mean, I, the, I mean, the, the problem with those, those movies, uh, and I mean, we've talked about it before of how difficult it is with children, uh, actors, but the problem with those movies is that you need really more time to tell these stories. It, it, Harry Potter, maybe, maybe the first book could have been told in a single movie, except the first book is your introduction to this universe. So in yeah, a it's sense, a tiny it needs to be, book, yeah. yeah. But in, but because it's the introduction to the universe, it almost needs to be bigger than than the rest because you're setting up everything else that's going to come after from that starting point. And it just I don't think it it's well suited to a movie in the way that say the Hobbit book could have been suited to a single movie because it's a really simple, straightforward story. Yeah. So much happens in a Harry Potter book that I think it's better suited to a miniseries for each each book than it is a a movie. Yeah, but even so, like, I mean, to me, like, movies, they're about moving, right? The things have to be moving. That's why they're movies. Uh, and it's about action. And it's about watching things happen. And so much of the Harry Potter books that are great and that is beautiful about the books isn't about the isn't the parts where there's action and moving happening it's all the parts where it's like two people talking or two people thinking about something or like other than quidditch i don't know what of the harry potter stories really lends itself well to to movie making maybe the wizards dueling but even then it's like the way they do it in the movies was so terrible Voldemort hits Harry with his hand in the movies. He slaps him across the face at one point. That's we, not how wizards fight. Okay? Well, and, and that's that's not how Tom Marvolo Riddle would fight. No, like, he wouldn't fight. He like that. of all people would not resort to a muggle tactic. But but you're but you're right to point to that so much of what happens in those books is intellectual and conversational. Except you start to see that shift at around book five right where there is still lots of the conversation but there's more and more action in those latter books than i think like i i think book five uh, probably has more action than the first three books put together no i uh at the book five ends with lots of action it ends with the ministry of the the flight to the ministry of magic and the the fight against a bunch of death eaters uh and running through so the last bit of book five is yes definitely totally action and i bet the movie version of that is a lot of fun with wizards disappearing and reappearing and shooting spells at each other and stuff and and if i remember correctly it is very fun uh but other than that the rest of that book if i'm not mistaken is harry being really angry at everybody and not wanting to talk to anybody and uh walking around Sirius Black's house and Sirius telling him about his like, you know, the the, the <laughs> like the 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 fabric on the wall and all the different cousins and relations and pure blood versus half blood and Harry having dreams about being a snake and Harry having dreams about the ministry of magic and like what's down this room and like just all this like it's a lot of that. You're right. There are multiple chapters of that book dedicated to cleaning the house. Exactly. And it's like that is not good movie material, <laughs> but it's great reading material um, because you're slowly unraveling this world that J.K. Rowling is building and like about Sirius Black and the, the Black family and how he's actually related to Bellatrix, uh, who's also related to the Malfoys, right? Like, like and how you learn all the lineage of the families and this whole pure blood versus half blood versus uh, mud blood, excuse the language, um, sort of world is all unraveled there. And it's so fascinating and you love it. Um, and Snape is on a secret mission and all this sort of stuff, but nothing is really happening. You're right. You're right. Now that I now that you put it like that, there is definitely not as much action as I I thought. And I. And my, my first instinct was that it was a result of the movies getting started and, mm -hmm. and her writing towards future movies. But I don't know. Maybe she didn't. Maybe there isn't that dramatic a shift. And I mean, no, I, truthfully, like book seven, 
It's a the, lots of that book is camping. Yeah, book seven, most of it's intense, um, and I, and like book six, the the Half Blood Prince is maybe the worst uh, offender of all because it's mostly like a love triangle story, and Harry like studying and trying to catch Malfoy who's in a room and we don't even see what he's doing the whole time, and like it's just like there's so much that's like nothing happens. Nothing happens for so long. Oh, and then the most exciting parts. Harry and Dumbledore sit and talk about Voldemort. <laughs> and sometimes revisit his old memories. Yeah, and in his old memories, you know what he's doing? Talking to Talking Voldemort. to people about stuff. And it's just like so much like history and everything, which is so fascinating when you're invested in those stories so much uh, and you're you're in that world. But as a movie, it's like, man, I can see why they cut out so much of, of those those parts of the book. Oh, and then the fifth book, the other part of the fifth book is them like, like, uh, is, is, uh, Umbridge, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the whole, the whole thing at the school where it's like their, you know, detentions and stuff and him trying to avoid, uh, her and like him want him like seeing his dad's memories and stuff and like wanting to go talk to Sirius and Lupin about it and like going through the fireplace and like, was my dad really a mean person? <laughs> but see, <laughs> see, that, that was such an interesting choice for me because, it it added this this level of nuance to Harry's Harry's history that wasn't there prior because his parents were just these these archetypes that he looked to as a as heroes and of yeah. course of course he did because he he didn't know them and they're his parents and that's what we do with our parents but what she managed to do was turn these archetypes into human beings oh and perfectly as well yeah yeah, and and it, it it managed to to do that so well, which is particularly notable because it was in just the last book where we saw the the wand ghosts of Harry's parents from Voldemort's wand, and they were uh, like, no, that's in the that's in the fourth one. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking. In the fifth one, in the final book, he flips the stone and they come out of the right, right. The, but the it's, resurrection stone, yeah. it, like in the fourth book, they're they're still these really basic archetypes who are just, we love you, Harry. Yeah. Hold on, and it's, and and it and it's you know fine for for the moment, but then she goes and says, yeah, but they're also people. Let me show you how. Yeah, and shows like James being a douchebag. Yeah, which which precisely shows the the sort of relationship that that Snape ends up on. Like it it doesn't make Snape the good guy certainly. It but just it because, redeems his feelings. Yeah. Yeah, and but it also makes it clear that a bunch of what happened it probably like it's it's almost fortunate that James was was a teenager because Snape becomes so necessary to the revolution in the end, right? Yeah, and like talking, like like let's let's talk about Snape for a second here, because like I think uh, uh, one of the bigger criticisms of the book is it's like how long, how for how many books can you make us go? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Like the, it, it gets tiring, <laughs> you know. It's like every book is like, ooh, it must be Snape. Ooh, it must be Snape. And it's like, it's never going to be Snape. <laughs> but see, the thing that I've always bought about that is that never is that believed by anyone but Harry and his friends. That Snape's a bad guy? Yeah. Yeah, everyone else knows he's a good guy. Yeah, and so in a way, that reminds me very much of the way that we are as young men and women. How we mm -hmm. make this snap judgment about someone and it can be a teacher or, you know, some, that's just someone older. And we stick to that snap judgment to the point where we end up reinforcing our belief about them in everything that we do, in every relationship that we have. Harry is deliberately an ass to Snape. And yeah. so never gives Snape the opportunity to, to treat him kindly. But Snape is also a jerk to him, like, right away. Totally, totally, and I'm and I'm not pretending that Snape is a, a good guy in this, but yeah. but definitely it's that that childlike where you're going to make a snap judgment about someone and stick to it, and and then everything you do is going to reinforce that belief about them as a yeah, person. Yeah, whether whether he saves you, however many times he saves you, he's still a bad guy in my head. I've made that decision, and Sirius Black comes around and he kind of sides with Harry a little bit on that. 
He does. And doesn't like Snape as well. And they have like this, this uh, you know, back and forth a bunch. But then, of course, she does that beautiful move at the end of the sixth book uh, where Snape kills Dumbledore. Yes. Dumbledore dies. Like, And we all know he has to die for storytelling purposes. But still, like, I remember Dumbledore dying being like, it shook the foundation of the world when that happened. I mean, it was it was terrifying, it, both in the the story universe, but also for us as readers, because Dumbledore had really anchored the the world for Harry for these last couple books. And he was the only one that Voldemort ever feared. And with with Dumbledore dead, what are we going to do? Yeah, and and he was Harry's last connection to family after the Blacks, right? Yeah. And so it became this really, this this terrible moment for so many different reasons. And and having Snape be the one to do it was perfect. Yeah, because then it tilted it to, ha-ha, he's been a bad guy the whole time. Yeah. But, but then there's those of us who knew, there's no way he's actually the bad guy. When Dumbledore says, Severus, please, he's asking him to kill him. Well, and you see, the best part about that is that that line works when it's written because it's ambiguous when it's written. Yeah, because we can't imagine what he means by it. Yeah, we don't hear the tone in his voice, so we hear it how we want. Yeah. So those who believe Snape is a bad guy are going to read it as Dumbledore pleading for his life. And those who yeah. think Snape is a good guy are going to think otherwise. Yeah, but it's, it is a great move that... that he kills Dumbledore. It's perfect. And then he gets instituted as the the headmaster at Hogwarts. And he's just like the perfect spy. And of course he's the perfect spy. He's the one who knows occlumency. He can block people reading his mind. Uh, he was a really bad person. But of course, what is it that redeemed him? What is it that kept him from being a Death Eater? Love will save the day. Love. Love, man. Love is, love is all you need. Love is Harry's true magic. Um, uh, yeah, and like, uh, yeah, so the whole whole Severus thing is great. And the fact that when he gives him the memory at the end and, and Harry runs upstairs and he goes in and he sees the memory uh, and and watches Severus growing up, meeting meeting Lily Potter and uh, or Lily uh, uh, Evans. And at the same time, uh, we get a little glimpse into Petunia Right. And why Harry's mother, why Harry's uh, uh, aunt, Petunia, hated her sister so much and didn't want to deal with the, that lot, the wizards and magic. And it's just, it was more out of jealousy and uh, than it was of uh, hatred. Well, and, and that's the other part of these books that is, at the surface, it seems like a battle between good and evil at all times. But what it ends up being is about the nuances of emotion that drive people and and about the connections to friends and family that guide us in particular ways. It's it's what makes Neville a hero in the end. It's what mm-hmm. makes uh, Draco a villain for most of the story and then, you know, a neutral actor towards the very end of it because because of family, yeah. N- not because Draco is in his heart a bad person. He's not mm-hmm. a good guy. He he certainly has a tendency towards ill will, but he's not evil at his core. No. And even even Lord Voldemort, he becomes evil, but he, that's a choice he makes. He chooses to enter into that world partially as a result of the predicament he he finds himself in as a young man, mm-hmm. but partially because he decided not to be good. Yeah, and that's the the thing she makes the distinction about. Uh, I think Harry even asks Dumbledore about it when uh, Dumb- Harry starts feeling sorry for Voldemort because of the situation he grew up in. Uh, and Dumbledore has to remind him that, Harry, you grew up in the same situation and you didn't turn to manipulation and you didn't turn to violence to uh, to, to frighten people. You turned to goodness and kindness and caring. So there is a choice that we get to make. And that's the thing. Ultimately, it comes down to choice. All the concerns about luck, all the concerns about good and evil, all the concerns about who's right and wrong really end up in the choices people make and then living with those consequences. 
And Snape is a great example of that, who, who makes a number of wrong choices and just so happens to be in the place where he can make the one right choice. Yeah. And it doesn't redeem him. Snape, at the end, is not redeemed of all his evil. No. But at the same time, he was an integral part of the battle on the side of the good guys. And that, that's mm. enough. And as Harry says when he says, uh, Albus Severus Potter, you were named after the two bravest wizards I ever knew. You know, and like uh, Harry acknowledges uh, Snape's bravery and strength, not necessarily his, uh, you know, he's a good guy. <laughs> he didn't say, you're named after two really nice people. <laughs> no, and, and because it couldn't be true. And everything that Harry learns about Dumbledore throughout the last book, I mean, that also shows it further. Dumbledore yeah, he was kind of cocky in that he, is, he uh, abandoned his brother and sister, essentially, and is partially responsible for why his sister and his parents died. Like, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Yeah, and 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 Dumbledore made the choice. And and that's why Harry again and again is offered the opportunities that he is right down to that very last moment where he's died and the ghost of Dumbledore is talking to him and says, "You can stay here if you want. You don't have yeah. to go back." And Harry says, "This is something I've got to do." And goes back. Yeah, I should probably go back. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says something like that. Uh, I remember that loving that chapter so much when Harry and Dumbledore are just talking in the train station. It's all like white. And he's like, uh, I think they're at King's Cross Station. And Dumbledore is like, oh, maybe we are. This is, as they say, your party. Uh, <laughs> like that line. And just the idea that it's like, oh, man, Harry can now just ask Dumbledore whatever he wants. Which, I mean... The, the beauty of that scene there is that it mirrors what is probably the best scene in the entire book series. Which one's that? And that's when Dumbledore is explaining to Harry why he couldn't tell him the truth. When he couldn't tell him um, the, the magnitude of... Because he cared about Harry, right? Because, because he... This yeah, is, and he I, says, are you seeing... Are you seeing my big flaw yet? And then he continues to tell the story. And then you fought in the Chamber of Secrets. More than an adult's task. And yet still I didn't tell you. Why didn't I tell you? Yeah, that's at the end of the fifth book, I think. You're right. It is at the end of the fifth book after Cirrus Black has died. Yeah, and, and after uh, the, and the, the prophecy. Which I got to say, this is the, maybe the only book series where there's been a prophecy that hasn't made me roll my eyes. Um, the idea that neither can live while the other survive. And, you know, the dark lord will mark him as his equal, all that kind of stuff. And it's the only prophecy that's ever made me not go, ugh, God, prophecy, seriously? Like, what a cheap storytelling mechanic. And I think it's because they live in a world of magic, one. Uh, Harry takes a, uh, a fortune-telling class. Uh, what's it called? What yeah, it no, called? fortune teller. Divination. You know. He takes divination. They, they open uh, and, fortune cookies. And and the divination teacher is just like uh, full of a crock, like a fake, obviously a fake. Um, and like the whole idea of fortune telling is just ridiculed and it, divination is an unclear art form and McGonagall hates it and Hermione hates it. And so Harry's taking this whole class and then we do get her, she gives a prediction at the end of one of the classes just to Harry that the Dark Lord's servant will return to him and stuff like that. And then it actually happened. And Harry asked Dumbledore, she said this, is that true? And then Dumbledore says, oh, I guess that brings her, her accuracy up to two, is what he says. Two. Which means the first one <laughs> was the one she made about Harry. <laughs> Which is like, they set that up in the third book, that, that there's a prophecy. But then we never hear about it until the fifth book again. She's really good at this, like, set it up, and then two books later we'll pick it up because uh, it really helps build that world and make it seem plausible. It doesn't seem forced, you know? Well, and I think the other reason that you, you end up buying the prophecy in this series is that it comes back to this, this problem of choice. And Dumbledore makes that clear when he's talking to Harry about Neville Longbottom in that uh, Voldemort chose to mark... Harry and not Neville, but 
the fact that Dumbledore, uh, sorry, the fact that Lord Voldemort chose to act at all is what makes the prophecy true. And be, he only chose to act because someone overheard the prophecy. Yeah, and so it isn't so much the prophecy as this, uh, this thing out of magic, it's just a choice. Yeah, and it's a choice that you're presented with. Do you want to do this? You can. And if Lord Voldemort hadn't done that, there's a good chance he would have won. Yeah. If he hadn't gone after the Potters, there might not have been anyone with the capacity to beat him. Yeah. Because everything that happens afterwards is dependent on this discovery of the Horcruxes and all this sorts of stuff. And, I mean, it just, Dumbledore wouldn't have been able to do that if he was busy fighting a war against Lord Voldemort. And... Mm -hmm. And you, it's hard to imagine a scenario where Voldemort doesn't come out the victor there. Yeah, and the only reason he lost was because he vanished. Because he couldn't kill a baby. In Godric's Hollow, which I want to point out, Godric's Hollow, mentioned in the first book, we find out Godric Gryffindor is is the name of Gryffindor, the house of Gryffindor. And then it's not until way later that we kind of make that connection that Godric Hollow is named after Godric Gryffindor and that Harry's a Gryffindor and that's where he's from. Like, she did a really good job picking up her, her offers. Man. She did, yeah. Well, and the other thing that I love about her is her ability to pick her moments. I mean, the first book is relatively light. I mean, there, there are a couple of, of darker moments in there, but it's, it's, it's light, fair, it's meant to be straightforward. Second book has hints of darkness, um, especially with, you know, exactly why uh, uh, Ginny was uh, reading and, and relying on the diary, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there, there's moments like, oh, there's kind of hinting at real-world situations there. And then book three gets a little bit more, more intense with uh, the mm -hmm. Dementors themselves, but... And the psychotic killer Sirius Black who's out trying to kill everybody. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it's still light fair up until this point. And it's yeah. it's in book four where she kills Cedric Diggory. Just dead. It's that death that just goes, oh, man. I, I mean, whether you like Cedric or not doesn't matter because you understand the significance of that moment and how how terrible it is for Harry. And it makes death real. It does, which had to happen in the series. Death had to be made an actual consequence, given the stakes that are at play here. And she hadn't really done that yet. Yeah, and, and like the other thing she does in that fourth book that is super dark is the, the, the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup who wear these black masks and are like like making muggles like float up in the sky upside down with their clothes falling off like and stuff and you're like what this is like crazy like Ku Klux Klan style torture you know like this is this is insane and it sets in motion the the believable actions of Harry in uh, in the later books and it i mean that's why Harry is willing to start this militant student organization, the the Dumbledore's army. Yeah, the DA. <laughs> right? Like, it, it, it just, she, she makes the world real, and she makes the consequences of Voldemort real in a way that Harry even hadn't understood prior. Because he'd been throwing himself in Voldemort's way again and again because he, he thought that that was the good thing to do. And when Cedric Diggory dies, he realizes, I could die here. Yeah, and we realize it too. And that's why we start to see more characters, you know, get snuffed throughout the series because that has to be a constant threat. And I got to say, I think that's like uh, one of the bold, some of the boldest decisions she made was when she killed off Tonks and, and Lupin. And so Harry's now a godfather and raising in someone else's kid at 18 years old. <laughs> Uh, like, oh, what a great decision. And killing off one of the twins. You know, I I always like thought she how... was going to kill off Ron. Really? Oh, no, no. I, I, I actually, you know what I would have hoped for? I was going to hope she killed Harry. Part of me always wished, like, before I read the last book, that when Harry goes to die and sacrifices himself to Voldemort, that he actually dies. 
and then Ron kills Voldemort. That's what I always kind of wanted. I wanted Ron to be like the superhero, and uh, and like now Ron finally gets what he wants to be like great, and Harry dies. <laughs> but I mean, that's why too Neville, bold, too ne- bold. Too Neville bold. got to be great instead. Yeah, he killed the snake. Yeah, he did he did what Harry told him to? Um, yeah, and like uh, yeah, so the the whole bold decision she made in that last book was just fantastic. I loved it. I loved all the ones. I loved that she killed one of the twins. It made it so sad and so so heartbreaking for the Weasley family. The Weasley family who we've loved through the all, all of the books because they're just a perfect family. And uh killing off Lupin who was always one of my favorite characters in the books because he was so awesome and a werewolf. Hello. Yeah, and uh and um I applaud her choices and her ability to make those big choices. Well, and that's the thing. It's it it's the ability to say I'm not going to do what's safe. I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to necessarily treat this as if I mean I'm I'm going to I'm going to get rid of characters that people love because I think that it needs to happen. I think and that it it's makes, important it, for the story. It makes yeah, it makes a better story. Mm-hmm. It does. Awesome, man. Uh, okay, final thoughts. Well, I mean, for me, one of the things that as I get older, the one of the themes of the Harry Potter books that starts to to hit home more and more is is how how important family and all its nuances is uh, in J.K. Rowling's writing, and and the the different kinds of family the the family that you're born with and into the family that you're stuck with. Uh, and then the the families that we choose and the ones that we make and the ones that choose us mm-hmm. and how how important it is to recognize the importance of both sides of that you know it's it's convenient to to say oh well you know you're stuck with family but at the same time you know they're stuck with you and and they help build you into the person that you are for good or ill and 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 we see this throughout Harry's entire existence. He wouldn't have been the person that he was if his parents weren't who they were. But at the same time, he also needed the Dursleys to be lousy to him. Yeah. Because it developed his goodness in a way that would not have otherwise been possible. And and so the circumstances in which he found himself and which he hated were so important for him developing into a better person because of it. And and I mean we we all have these sorts of relationships and some of this is with family and some of this is just with people that we're stuck with in our lives where we have to recognize that we have valuable things to learn from those relationships. And mm-hmm. in the Harry Potter series it it's it's reinforced by the fact that we can learn lessons from them as much as we can learn the lessons from the people that we choose to be around and the relationships that we choose to be a part of and the people that we choose to be when we are with those people. Yeah, family and love. Yeah. Um, To me, I think uh, my final thoughts on the Harry Potter series, I guess I have two. I mean, one of them is just quick about how the world of Harry Potter is what makes it so, uh, so incredible. I mean, a lot of the story is like, He's an orphan. There's this evil bad guy, and he has to fight him. You know, like like a lot of we could say there's a lot of cliche storytelling techniques in there, and a lot of borrowed things. Like she borrows a lot from like Lord of the Rings and other fantasy novels in her in her stories. Um, but the world that she creates through Harry Potter and the world of magic and the Ministry of Magic and Hogwarts and all the different magical schools and the different magical world and how well it slowly slowly develops into this full world is awesome uh and to tie in with that this idea of slowly developing the thing about the books that uh i always i guess i feel when i read them or think about them is this idea of of growing and aging and growing older and growing up and that it goes through these seven years of this character's life and each year he slowly gets older he learns more lessons he matures he deals with heartbreak he deals with death he deals with all of these things that we deal with as we get older he learns more about the world he realizes that you know like adults aren't 
as as uh, capable as they seem to be and that everyone who's perfect is not perfect and these same things that we all learn as we grow old in our world we get to read harry learning that about his world and uh and at the same time discover this lovely magical world with him i mean and i i mean you're you're absolutely right and that just makes me think about one more thing that i i love about the series and and part of this has to do with who J.K. Rowling is as a person and her own background growing up mm-hmm. in uh, in Europe. In in that she's not afraid to bring the real world into the fantasy world, and she's not on the nose about it uh, at all times. But you know, she is saying important things about the the relationship that we have to each other in a in a state way. You know, she's saying certain things about the role of education and the role of of healthcare and all these different sorts of things that are that are really important contemporary issues. And she doesn't she doesn't directly say, well, this is meant to be an allegory for the government. But at the same time, there's a way in which she's she's very particularly built her world to be in accordance with the values that she believes are most important. And it's why, you know, the, one of the lessons of, of book five and six is that Professor Snape, as uh, a teacher, is always going to be better than the government interference of someone like Umbridge. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's, it's just little things like that that she, she's willing to put into her stories but not directly... Um, directly state it's it's things like dumbledore's sexuality which in the books she doesn't explicitly state but is left as a question it it's those sorts of things where you're you you see her as a really mature writer and and i love that about her yeah awesome man this has been fun i I love talking about harry potter i could do this all the time yeah, except we're not. We're not going to do a, another episode about Harry Potter. No, that was only that one time. Um, lovely talking to you about Harry Potter. Lovely uh, to have our listeners listening to us talk about Harry Potter. Thanks for tuning into the Style Guide. And um, finite incantatum. That means that's, that's the how you stop a spell effect. Mm-hmm.